Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. As we near the end of this great book, it's kind of sad. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, but it's sad to see it getting close to the end. We have a wonderful text to work on today. So it's, this is Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is living and active. Cuts to our heart. And Your Spirit uses the Word to challenge us and encourage us. So, Father, I pray that Your Word would speak this morning. Speak to each of us wherever we are. That You would speak beyond the words I could possibly say. That Your Spirit would be at work strengthening the body so that we may faithfully endure together. Father, I'm so thankful for Your Word and the blessing it is to gather each week to remember what Your Son has done. Help us rejoice in our great Savior and King this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, as many of you know, um, my family and I have been involved in foster care adoption ministry for a while now. I think it's been almost seven years when I counted, out, counted it up the other day. Um, we've endured some really tough times. We've also had some of the greatest joys of our life. Uh, overall, I can say it has been a blessing even when it can be really difficult. One of the biggest blessings actually about foster care is talking to other families about foster care and adoption. We love to share our story. We love to talk to people about all that God has done and all that God has brought us through and just encourage other people to foster and adopt. But one of the, the strange parts about foster care is when we tell people our story, we get some interesting responses. Do you know what the most common thing people say when they hear all the crazy foster care stories are? 
Most common thing people say, I could never do that. Not in a million years. I could never do that. I've heard this countless times, and to be honest, I don't have a good response. I still don't know what to say. I mean, what do you say? Well, I guess we're just more godly than you. No. (laughs) It's, It's not true at all, right? It's ridiculous. I guess the truth is we, we didn't do it because we felt ready or qualified in any way. I can tell you I've been through many things that I did not feel qualified to handle and that I would have never signed up for. But we saw a need. We, we stepped out in faith. We trusted the Lord to work, and He did. Now please, look, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you're in sin if you're not in foster care. I'm not saying you're in sin if you've, you're not adopting a ton of kids. God cares for the body in different ways. He calls His people to minister in different ways. And He equips wherever He calls. So if you're the one that told me, look, I can never do this, please don't feel bad. I'm not judging you. In fact, you know what? I'm here to relate to you. Because that sentiment isn't true of just foster care. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I found myself saying the exact same thing to our missionaries. I hear that all they do overseas, and I hear of all the roadblocks and all the difficult things ahead of them. I think, I could never do that. No way. But I'm so thankful that God has called them to do that. And I trust that God will equip them for that task that He's given them. You see, my only concern with the statement, I could never do that, or I just can't do this, is when we take that statement, and instead of applying it to various callings, or various difficult situations, we take that statement and we apply it to God's commands. We look at what God's commanded, and you know what? We're not all called to be foster parents. We're not all called to be missionaries overseas, are we? But each of us are commanded, commanded to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and to run with endurance the race which is set before us, looking only to Jesus. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? We are commanded to endure the discipline of the Lord without growing weary and without complaining. The last two weeks we've been commanded to run this race together, to endure together, haven't we? By keeping strong and pursuing harmony and unity and holiness. Growing in grace instead of bitterness and making sure there's no, there's no immorality or godlessness among us. That's just in chapter 12, by the way. I don't know about you, but these last couple weeks in Hebrews 12 have felt like a, like a kick in the teeth, to use Chad's words. They've been a huge hit to my pride. Because holiness like this, patience, endurance, it's not easy. It's so daily. It's so constant. It's an uphill battle every second for sinners like us, isn't it? And you know, there's, there's some comfort that we're in this struggle together. There's encouragement there. But there's, that's also part of the problem. Right? Anybody that's done a group project knows that. Some of the struggles, our greatest struggles, come from each other. You know the temptation for all of us in the middle of this is to say, I can't do this. I can endure a lot. I can deal with a lot. But I can't do this. This temptation, this suffering, 
this, this difficult relationship, this risk, this command is asking too much. It's too difficult. It's too costly. It's too much of a constant struggle. I just, I can't do this. You know, that was the struggle of these early Christian believers as well, wasn't it? They started off strong. They trusted the Lord, walking by faith, and they endured some great hardships. But along the way, they were getting weary. They struggled with the daily battle of running this race. And they started to say, I can't do this. And so they looked to an easier way in their minds. They looked back to the glory days of of Old Covenant worship and the temple and the, the sacrifices and all the rituals, all the forms of worship that they grew up with. They were familiar with and used to. And they considered throwing in the towel, walking away to, from Jesus to go back to these outmoded ways of approaching God. You see, and just like us, they look at what God's commanding them. And they say, I can't do this. Our passage in Hebrews today recognizes this struggle. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, you probably notice this, is listing command after command, right? See to it. Watch out. Make sure you do this and don't do that. And he realizes along the way that this is, this can feel like a burden to weary Christians. This can feel like a struggle that they're not able to handle. And so he slams on the brakes. I believe God inspires him to slam on the brakes and take seven verses to encourage these weary Christians. To give them the reason or the motivation behind these commands. He encourages them before he he piles on the shoulds. All the things they're called to do. That's why verse 18, if you look at it, begins with for. Therefore, right? For this reason. He's saying, look, this is the reason you obey. This is your encouragement. This is your motivation. And what is that motivation? Well, in one word... It's the Gospel. The Gospel is the motivation for the fight. The Gospel is our strength, our encouragement, our why. More specifically in this text, He'll tell us of all the New Covenant blessings and privileges we have in Christ. That's what we get to meditate on today. Think about all we have in the New Covenant in Christ. Now you may have noticed as we read through this text, this, this, these verses just list a ton of blessings, don't they? They organize this list around two metaphors, two mountains, right? You might have noticed that. There's Mount Zion at the end and then Mount Sinai in the beginning. And these two metaphors act actually as metaphors for the old covenant in Sinai and the new covenant in Zion. And as we walk through this big list and, and process these things, I want to draw your attention to three parts. Three words that come out of the text that will help us kind of categorize these blessings and these distinctions. And the three words are this. The first one is mountain, members, and mediator. All M's, just for you. Mountains, members, and mediator. The mountain will show us where we've come. The members will remind us of who we are, and the mediator will show us how we got there. So as we meditate on the new covenant and the old covenant and all that we have in Christ, we'll look to these three categories, mountain, members, and mediators, and see what Christ has done for us. Now before we actually dive in specifically, I I need to give one caution. Because I don't want to give you an incomplete picture. As you meditate on this text and the rest of Hebrews this week, I want to make sure that you think about covenants in the right way. 
Because this little paragraph, this seven verse, is just a glimpse into biblical covenants. So I want to make sure we keep it all in perspective. So we need to remember that when we compare the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we're not primarily comparing law and gospel. It's not primarily a comparison between law and gospel. As if the New Covenant has no law. Or the Old Covenant has no gospel, right? The New Covenant is full of law. I mean, look at chapter 12 alone. Look at Jeremiah 31 where the the law is written on our hearts in the New Covenant. New Covenant's full of law. Now on the contrary, the Old Covenant is full of grace, isn't it? I mean, if you just turn back one page in Hebrews 11, all of those Old Covenant saints were clearly saved by grace, weren't they? The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are both full of law and gospel. And while that will be the, the primary focus today, it's not all the covenants are. So it's best to keep thinking about the Old Covenant and the New in terms of promise and fulfillment, not just law and Gospel. Please keep that in mind. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant isn't opposed to the New. The Old Covenant is fulfilled in the New. It looks forward to the New. We have to keep reminding ourselves what Ian Hamilton keeps telling us, right? To tear out that page between the Testaments. It's one story. The Old Covenant is like the preface to the book. Right? Or the the trailer, or the, the preview for the movie, if you're less sophisticated like me. Right? That's what it is. Promise and fulfillment. A shadow and substance. So please keep that in mind as we walk through this text. So let's let's dive in. Verse 18, as we look to this first mountain this first mountain of Sinai. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Now he doesn't use the word Sinai here. He'll make it really obvious it's Sinai as we walk through this text. But the first thing I want you to notice is look at the language he uses to describe this place. You have not come. This is the language we see all throughout Hebrews with drawing near. You remember that? Chapter 10 and chapter 4, it says, let us with confidence draw near to God. It's the same word. Drawing near in worship, in relationship to our Father. Approaching Him in this covenant renewal, this relationship. So He's saying, you have not come to Mount Sinai, which can be touched. Why can't Sinai be touched? It's a weird way to describe it. It's a physical mountain, isn't it? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. Here's the description of Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Now these four images are pulled right out of Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5. We don't have time to go there this morning, but if you have the chance, read those texts this week and you'll be amazed at the glorious scene that unfolds there. As God descends on the mountain to give the law, to covenant with His people, and turns this measly little mountain into almost like a a volcano. Right? That's what it looks like at the end. It's fire and smoke and lightning and thunder. It's just a, a terrifying sight. And if the mountain itself wasn't terrifying... The real terror starts in the next verse. Verse 19. And the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets were used to gather the people to the mountain. 
The trumpets were also used to announce the arrival of the king. As God drew near, that's where the terror began. And God didn't just come to the mountain. He didn't draw near to the people alone. He spoke to the people. Right? That's what it says. Verse 19, And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. I can't even imagine how terrifying and awesome truly awesome not the way we use awesome right truly awesome this scene must have been oh please don't see this as all just terror and and bad news this was an incredibly gracious act by god to draw near to his people to come close after he saved them miraculously out of egypt to covenant and condescend to meet with his people but it's almost too much to bear It's too much for them. Because when God shows up, His holiness and righteousness and glory are on display. They find out that their God is a consuming fire. As it says at the end of this chapter. That sinners don't belong in in the presence of this God. Even little animals, if they touch the mountain, they're dead. What chance do sinners have? It's a terrifying scene. And the message that the Sinai is giving the people is loud and clear. Draw near to worship. Draw near to God. He's drawn near to you, but don't come too close. That's a big part of the Old Covenant. God is drawing near. He's nearer, but He's still separate. Because this mountain cannot be touched. Well, how would God's people respond to this mountain? How would the members of the covenant community respond to the mountain? Well, we got a taste of that in verse 19, didn't we? After the trumpet and the voice, what does it say? It made the hearers, that's the Old Covenant community, the the members of God's community here, the hearers begged, begged, that no further message be spoken to them. Now this is actually a weak translation. The, The better translation here would be refused. That's the same word in verse 25. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. That's what the people were doing. They were refusing to draw near to this God. Terrified. Exodus 20 says this. Listen to how the people respond. The people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. It's almost like God says, come close and they take one step. (laughs) That's good enough. We're not coming any closer In fact, they look to Moses and say, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. People of God are saying, look, Moses, we're done here. Right? If if sinners do not belong in the presence of this God, we're in trouble. We saw what He did in Egypt. We saw what He did to their false gods. What He promised to do to even animals. We have no chance in the presence of this God. And we don't want to die. No, Moses, you go. You go for us. You see, when God's people got a glimpse glimpse of His glory at Sinai, they didn't think refuge. They thought run. Let's get as far away from this God as we possibly can. They didn't pull a Jonah and take off completely. 
Instead, they knew they needed to draw near, and so they looked for a mediator. Their one chance. Moses, surely Moses is the guy. Look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's horrible news, by the way. Think about it. They thought, surely Moses, this is the man who speaks to God like speaking to a friend. Surely Moses, I mean, he was the one that parted the Red Seas. He squared off with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He's got to have the confidence to draw near to God. God called him out. right? God gave him this task. Surely he's holy enough. Righteous enough. If anybody can do it, it's got to be Moses. But when they look at Moses, they see the same terror in his eyes that they feel in their hearts. Because Moses recognizes that he's a sinner just like them. That if he drew near to God, all he would receive is justice and death just like them. You see, this moment is a massively important moment in the Old Covenant. Because this defines the entire Old Covenant. It tells us what the law and the sacrifices were meant to teach. One, that sinners do not belong in the presence of a holy God. And that God's people need a qualified mediator to commune with God. That's the end of the Old Covenant. That's where it was all leading us. It was meant to get the people to the place where they say, I can't do this but I still need somebody to do it for me. That's where it was all headed. There was this great scene in Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry if you're getting tired of me sharing Pilgrim's Progress. I love the book. Maybe by the time I share enough, you feel like you've read it. Um, it's Pilgrim's Progress, the scene in the very beginning when Christian is, is just headed out. He still has this burden on his back, and he's, he's headed to the wicket gate. And along the way, he comes across Mr. Worldly Wiseman. You remember this? Worldly Wiseman. And he, he tells Worldly Wiseman, look, this burden is so heavy. It's so hard. It's so hard to travel like this. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, I'll bet it is. Which way are you going? He says, I'm going to the wicked gate. I'm going there and then the celestial city. And Worldly Wiseman looks at him and says, what are you doing? You're going the wrong way. Look, I know someone that can get the burden off your back as soon as possible. And his name is Mr. Legality. All you have to do to get to him is climb that mountain. And Bunyan says, that's Mount Sinai. And Christian says, look, this is great news. I can get the burden off my back as soon as possible. I'll do anything I can to do that. And so he climbs Mount Sinai. And as he climbs, the burden gets heavier and heavier. He gets to a point where he can't even go any further. And he feels like the mountain is just going to crumble and crush him to death. And at that last moment of terror, he comes across Mr. Evangelist who says, Christian, what are you doing here? And he tells him about Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And the Evangelist says, Mr. Worldly Wiseman is a cheat. You can't get the burden off your back by climbing this mountain. Sinai was never meant to relieve you of this burden. You need another mountain. You need another mediator. And that's what we have in verse 22. Mount Zion, the second mountain, the new covenant. Verse 22. But you have come. This 
Worship, drawing near, this relational language. You have come where? To Mount Zion. What does the Bible say about Mount Zion? Oh, quite a bit actually. It can be a whole sermon, maybe a series that we could talk about with Mount Zion. But this passage wonderfully summarizes what Mount Zion is. Incredibly well. Let's keep reading. Look at the next part of verse 22. Mount Zion is the what? The city of the living God. Mount Zion is the place where God dwells with His people. Where the great Abrahamic promise is finally fulfilled. Where God will be their God and they will be His people forever. That's why at first, especially, Jerusalem was Mount Zion. As the ark and the covenant and the tabernacle and the the temple, as God rested with His people, that was Mount Zion. That was this city of the living God. But as time went on, the prophets and the Psalms began to, to nuance Mount Zion and talk about it as more symbolic. More future. In fact, Mount Zion also became a mountain that you couldn't touch. But for a different reason. Mount Zion was still holy. God was still there. But this mountain wasn't here. And that's what the next words say, right? Look at the middle of 22. This Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. As Galatians says, the Jerusalem from above. This is the final resting place of God's people. The celestial city. Our heavenly home. It's that better country that Abraham and the patriarchs looked to in chapter 11, right? It's the lasting, eternal city that we'll talk about in Hebrews 13. It's a glorious place. And look who's there. The end of 22. You've come to innumerable, countless, literally thousands upon thousands of angels. And what do they look like? They're in festal gatherings. That means they're ready to party. Ready to celebrate. They're ready to rejoice in their King. Did you see the glorious contrast here? Mount Sinai was temporary. Mount Sinai was communion with God along the way. In the wilderness as they were sojourning, they met with God in there, and then the tabernacle became like a mobile Mount Sinai, didn't it? And they met with God, but they were still headed somewhere. They were still headed to the promised land. But Zion is the city. It's not along the way. It's the end of the road. It's where we're all headed. Zion is the lasting, eternal, heavenly city. The final destination for God's people and God with His people. And Sinai is filled with gloom and darkness and and fire and wrath. Deuteronomy 33 says angels were at Sinai as well. Do you know that? Galatians 3 said they delivered the law to Moses. But when they were there at Sinai, it's almost as if they were standing as witnesses in a courtroom. As God covenanted with His people. Well, they were happy and rejoicing to be there. But if that covenant was broken, they would stand and witness against God's people. And what do we have in Zion? We have these angels rejoicing. Why? Because the covenant's been kept. The covenant's been complete. God dwells with His people, His church. Oh, this mountain, Mount Zion, this place is glorious. But you need to know one more thing about Zion. Zion's not just a place in Scripture. 
It's not just a city. It's not just a mountain. This heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is also the people of God. The Psalms talk repeatedly about Zion being God's possession, God's people. Daughter of Zion, right? Zion is the people of God. Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, that's Zion, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And listen to this. Prepared as a bride. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the church, isn't it? It's not just a place, it's a people. Zion is the place where the mountains and the members become one. Where God's people become one with God. And this glorious display, this perfect communion with God. Forever. Let's look at these members. Look at verse 23. The members of this community. Verse 23. And to the assembly, the church of the firstborn. That's what the angels are celebrating. The church has arrived. Now please, as you think about this, be careful. Because we think, okay, church, that's Acts. Right? That's Pentecost. That's where it starts, right? That's the people of God. So now we have the old covenant community compared to the new covenant community. That's not what's going on here. Who was called the assembly of the firstborn? It was Israel, wasn't it? Exodus 4. The firstborn of God. That's what Moses tells Pharaoh. They're going to be the ones pulled out to worship Him. They're later called the assembly, the church. Deuteronomy 9 and 18, Moses writes that the giving of the law was the day of the church. The people of God. And when we get to the New Testament, we get clarity, right? Jesus Himself is the firstborn. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And all that are in Him are the firstborn as well. So even though we have a different mountain, and we'll have a different mediator, the people of God are one. They've been miraculously transformed. But the members of God's covenant community have become one to rejoice in Him forever. And what do we know about them? Look at verse 23. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled, registered. This is where I get the idea of members. Right? They're enrolled in this book. Revelation calls it the Lamb's Book of Life. Right? There's this book that lists the people of God. Oh, do you see the glorious contrast here? Sinai, you look at the mountain and God draws near. Your instinct is to get away. I don't belong here. But in Zion, any instinct you have to run, God says, no, no, look. Your name's written right here. You belong here. This is your refuge. You are part of Zion now. This is your home. How could that be? How could the the people trembling at Sinai see this is their home. How could sinners like us feel like we belong with the Holy God? How is that even possible? Did God change? Absolutely not. Look at the middle of verse 23. And the people have come to what? Or to who? To God. The judge of all. Now this is an interesting phrase. It kind of threw me off all week. Because it feels out of place, doesn't it? 
all this passage about the joys and the glories of, of Zion, and then all of a sudden you, you stop and you're like, what, the judge? That's not good news if the judge is there. I'm sorry. Not good news for me at all. But what the writer is saying here is that, look, it's the same God. He's still holy. He's still righteous. He's still just. And so what changed from Sinai to Zion? If God didn't change, what did? Look at the end of verse 23. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's what changed. God in His holiness didn't change one bit. But the people have been transformed. The members of this covenant community have been made righteous, made perfect. In Hebrews, this is the idea of consecration, isn't it? Made fit to draw near to God. And look at this. This is a permanent reality. This is Jeremiah 31, writing the law in our hearts. We've been made a new creation. It's not like the the high priests of old who had to do bloodshed and ceremonial cleansing for a week just to draw near to God for a few minutes. These people have been made perfect forever. Been transformed. And now the judge who looked over them in judgment is now the judge for them in Christ. He vindicates them. His justice fights for them. He is their God, and He works righteousness and justice on their behalf. Oh, isn't that an encouragement to those that suffer? As the church becomes more and more marginalized, as the church becomes like it is in this first century context, we're suffering various things. Isn't it glorious to know that God, the judge, is the judge that happens over everything to His people? How can this be possible? How can such a a transformation take place? Well, it's only because the mediator. Only because the mediator. Look at verse 24. Last but definitely not least. The people have come to Jesus. This is what makes Mount Zion great. The king is there with his people drawing near to Him as they draw near to Him in worship. Oh, I hope you get this. The new covenant, the blessing, the greatest privilege we have in the whole thing is Jesus. Jesus is the reward. We come to Him. He's the blessing that Sinai points to. He's the one by faith that the old covenant saints looked to. They look forward to. We look back on. He's the one that fulfills all the promises of God. The promises given to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your great reward. You get me. I'm your reward. I'm the one you're looking for. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ, in Him, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because He is the final prophet, the final Word of God. He is God's own Son. He is our sympathetic, merciful, and faithful High Priest. He is the final sacrifice that we so desperately needed. He is the reward of Zion. But He's not just the reward. He's also the way into the covenant. He's the means by which we approach God. 
the way we become members of this covenant community. It's all through Jesus. You see, when we come to Jesus, we don't just come to Him. We come through Him. He is the means by which we have communion with God. Look at 24. That's why Jesus can be the mediator of a new covenant. How? Because the sprinkling of His blood, right? And to the sprinkled blood. Jesus did everything we never could. The One that Sinai led us looking for. He shed His blood to make atonement for a sin in a way that Moses never could. In a way those sacrifices in the Old Covenant never could. He obeyed the law in our place. He scaled Mount Sinai for us. Taking the curse that they were terrified to have. He lived and died on the cross. Rose from the dead so that Mount Sinai is not the mountain we have to scale. He opened the way to another mountain. Mount Zion. Through this mediator, where the people of God are cleansed, perfected, made fit to draw near to God forever. And how did he do this? By his blood. By the blood of the new covenant, which, 24 says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I might seem a little out of place. Seems like a weird time to bring up the first murder. Right? Why Abel? Wouldn't his blood speak better than those old covenant sacrifices or better than Moses? Why in the world are you bringing Abel back? Because you remember in Genesis 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel, God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Crying out to me. What did the blood of Abel say to God? It cried out for justice. For vindication. For vengeance. And so what did God do? He cursed Cain. The curse fell on Cain because he wasn't his brother's keeper. But Jesus was his brother's keeper. He died for his brothers. He took the curse upon himself for his brothers. And when his blood cries out from the ground, it cries out mercy and forgiveness. It cries out that the curse has been lifted. Isn't it amazing all that Jesus has done for His people? It's hard to even take it in. And this is seven verses. It's hard to even contemplate what's going on here. Can you see why the writer of Hebrews is saying, how could you walk away from this? How in the world could you trade Zion for Sinai? That's insane. How could you trade Jesus Christ for Moses? Why would you even go back to that? You're so concerned on what you'll lose. Right? And all that you're giving up, you don't realize what you've gained. You don't realize who you are and how you've come to be there. You know, we can look on our brothers and sisters in Christ and think, man, how in the world could they do that? In many ways, we're just the same as them, aren't we? We may not run back to sacrifice and temple and and Sinai literally, but we have our own Sinai's. We run back to law all the time. Some of us look on the commands, even in chapter 12, and we might pridefully think, you know what? I can do this. I got this. In fact, I don't even need the people of God. 
I don't need to make myself available for the means of grace. I don't need to gather with the people each week. I don't need to confess the sin. I can keep it all hidden, and I've got this. I can take care of this. You're just scaling up Sinai, trying to make your way to God through law. And as Bunyan said, that burden will crush you. You can't endure climbing Sinai. And on the other hand, some of us look at the law and we say, like I said in the beginning, I can't do this. There's no way. It's too difficult. It's too costly. And the hard part about this, in our fallen condition, that's correct. Sinai was meant to get us to the place to say, we can't do this. But it was never meant to keep us there. And some of us want to huddle at the foot of Sinai and say, I can't do this. I can't do this. But Sinai was meant to point to another mountain, another mediator, our perfecter. Because in Christ, we don't have to say, I can't do this. In Christ, we can look on these commands and say, that's who I am now. That's who Christ has made me to be. I can do this in Him. And not that I can do this, I get to do this. I get to gather with the people of God and worship with Mount Zion to draw near with the spirits of all God's people each and every week. How would I trade that out for anything in the world? And as hard as it can be, as difficult as it can get, I know Christ will keep me. Because He is His brother's keeper. He who began a good work in us will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hope. Let me pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Christ. Thank You that His work is done. Our salvation is sealed. And He that He justifies will also be glorified. Father, we have a living hope. Lives in heaven for us. Preparing a place for us. Father, help us put all of our trust and hope and faith in Him, the mediator of the better covenant. Our hope in this fallen world and our fuel for the fight. Father, help us endure because all of our hope is in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.